Hello and welcome once again to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns, and in this third episode about the recent Life in a Day conference in Leicester, I'm presenting my own keynote address entitled, And Then We Had Tea. As I've commented on previous occasions, a portion of any talk like this has to deal with just explaining who trans people are. On this occasion, I had more time available to spend on statistics, though. And then there was a confession I needed to get off my chest right from the start, too. Good morning, everybody, and uh, now I've got the challenge how to follow Linda. Well, since she laid down the gauntlet in terms of uh, of monitoring, I suppose I'd better volunteer proudly. The the only thing you actually omitted to mention is that I'm a transsexual woman. Um, I say I'm very proud to say that, um, but since we're sort of laying our cards on the table, I also do have a confession as well, because Peter's here. Uh, Linda will know this, but I used to be a conservative. (laughs) and I just want to explain that I'm not anymore and 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 there was there was one of those magic moments uh, I think they call it an epiphany uh, in 1997 when I suddenly realized that I was an awful more lot more embarrassed to stand up in public and say that I was a conservative than to say I was uh, a trans woman. So, <laughs> and I don't think that's actually ever, ch- ever going to change. Uh, <laughs> I think we, it, just before we accidentally sleepwalk into, an, into electing another different type of government, I think it is worth that we, that we do actually remember what it was like 11 years ago. And let's never go back to, to that because so many wonderful things have happened since and I'm, I'm a complete convert. So I've done the party political bit. Uh, now, I just... Also, Linda never actually had to explain what a gay man is or what a lesbian woman is. Um, I'm going to have to spend a lot of my time, probably for the benefit of the audience here, perhaps explaining a lot more about the background to, to who trans people are because we are generally regarded to be a lot more rare. I estimate probably about a thousandth the size of the LGB population. But let's just do a test. Um, could you put your hands up if you know a trans person? Well, that's, that's a pretty significant proportion of the, of the audience. Um, and that either means that there's perhaps more than imagined or we, we're each of us putting ourselves about a bit. Um, but I'd like you also to think about somebody, not, not now a trans person, just somebody in your life that you know quite well, but not intimately well. And I'd like you to think about whether that person is a man or a woman. Now, I'm not going to give you too long for that question because it doesn't usually seem to take that long. Now, just pause a moment. Have you ever seen that person's genitals? The reason I ask that question, the reason I make the point, is that in reality... We don't gender people according to what's between their legs. Somebody did that to me once when I arrived in the world, and look where it got them. They were wrong. But the rest of the time, we accept people on the basis of the way that they present to us. And every one of you is doing that facing me at the moment. You're telling me something about how, as complete strangers to me, I should begin to read the sort of person you are and know what to expect when I interact with you. As I get to know you better, I might find that you're you're pretty well atypical, but the way in which we present that fundamental difference in ourselves 
is, is vitally important. And that's why it is so vitally important for transsexual people to be able to present in the correct way to everybody else as well. It's not about that stuff between the legs. That's actually an expectation of society. I've never heard so much talk about genitals as when I sat through the passage of the Gender Recognition Act in, in Parliament because all the worry there was about the possibility that we might actually create people who are legally female with, uh, with penises. Or, or the, or the, actually, they weren't quite so concerned about the reverse proposition of, of, of men without. And in reality, actually, there are lots of men without penises. You know, anybody who's gone to war will, will, will know that there's an, that's, that's a major form of casualty. We, we don't worry about it. So when it's a fundamental thing to understand about transsexual people that don't think in terms of genitals and in terms of surgeries on genitals, but actually think about the whole person. And you will actually find also, particularly within, within health, that transsexual people don't think all that much about genitals, except insofar as it's reflecting everybody else's situation, uh, expectations. Now, the, the number one question I'm asked by journalists is, when did you have your operation? So what sort of people are transsexual people? Well, the majority of us are immensely ordinary. I've, I've picked some examples here to look at. Um, this lady is a general practitioner. This one... She flies 767s with 300 people behind her for a living. So if you think that we're a little bit dodgy mentally, then, then think again. <laughs> this gentleman is, well, he, he illustrates two points, actually. He was the, the first trans man to transition um, whilst working for the San Francisco police force. Um, but the main point is that I think everybody always assumes when we're talking about transsexual people that we're talking about people who go from male to female and that that's all it's about. And I remember in 1993, somebody in The Guardian wrote that you know, no, but no woman would ever want to become a man. Well, you know, that's another thing that The Guardian got wrong. Um, there are lots of trans men. And the interesting thing is, is that the more it's becoming possible for people to be out and to discover their own identities, and you know, because the first challenge is to come out to yourself, the closer we are coming to the position where we will find that the, the numbers are roughly equal. They're not equal at the moment, but they seem to be heading in that direction. This lady, the, the, no, you'll like this one, Peter. Um, this is the world's first uh, transsexual member of parliament. She's not, not in Westminster, just, just in case you were checking. Um, this is in New Zealand, but I do hope that she's not going to be, to be the last. Um, this lady uh, is a professional golfer, and her problem is that every time she goes to compete on a different circuit, organi organized by a different organization, she has to go through the same palaver of uh, them questioning and thinking up whether she is female enough to co compete as a woman. And then just to handicap her a little bit further, it's almost impossible for her to find sponsorship as well. This gentleman is a steel worker. He's carrying on the traditions of his, of his family. He was, he was born with a vagina. And uh, the people like myself and my colleague Stephen Wettel, who are now you know, relishing the fact that we can go around attending people's weddings. Although I must get another hat. <laughs> but, so, you know, there are trans people who stick out, but I think that, that lot actually probably qualify as pretty, pretty ordinary in, a, in a, a remarkably unremarkable way, which makes it all the more surprising that transsexual people are such targets of immense hatred. 
Now, this picture here is from an American website which charts the roughly one transsexual person a month who, in the United States, is murdered simply on the basis of being transsexual. Now, we're not quite as violent a society in Britain, but I know even among the small circle of my colleagues that I know people who've had petrol poured through their letterbox. I know people who've had their car set fire to. I know um, a colleague who uh, was given a copy of a circular that was being posted through every letterbox for half a mile around his house, trying to whip up sentiment to get him removed from his, from his house. And I think if we, you know, if we wanted to, to, to pathologise anything, rather than actually regarding, you know, one, worrying whether transsexual people like me might have something a little bit odd up here for wanting to be ourselves, we actually ought to pay more attention to wondering why it is that so many people in society get so hot under the collar by the mere proposition that I exist. Which brings us on to this point that being transsexual, having this condition that uh, med uh, medical people call dis gender dysphoria, is not in and of itself a mental illness. This is actually the statement by the government uh, in 2002 when it began the process of um, working towards what then became the Gender Recognition Act in 2004. Very clear statement. We're not mentally ill. But, just to put this into context, like anybody else who's the uh, recipient of immense displeasure from the rest of society, we do, during the point, of, point where we are transitioning, or if we've been the victims uh, or recipients of violence and... and uh, and other things, we do need support. So let's do some statistics. Now, I'm going to rattle through these at great pace because if, you know, if you give me the chance, I can spend an entire day on this, but I've only got 20 minutes, so I'm going to have to be very fast. Um, I say there are conservatively 5,000 transsexual people. As you'll see in a moment, I'm having to give up that number because it just doesn't equate with what we know and the, the sort of hands that went up when I asked the question just now. But um, 18 months ago, we were paid a small amount of money by the Cabinet Office to uh, undertake a study towards the Equalities Review, and that was published in February 2007. Um, if there are about 5,000 transsexual people, then we must have reached getting on for around about 20% of them. And among the 870 people that we surveyed, 73%, three-quarters, had been harassed in public. 10% had actually encountered threatening behaviour. Nearly half of us feared losing our jobs when we transitioned. A quarter, irrespective of the fact that we've had legal protection against discrimination in employment since 1999, felt obliged to leave their job. I've encountered people who've gone back to their locker and found that somebody had defecated in their shoes. Now, what sort of animals do we work with in our society? 10% had experienced verbal abuse. 6% had been physically assaulted. And this is the one that really gets to me, and again, it picks up something that Linda said earlier. 6% reported that they had actually been refused health care by a general practitioner or by another doctor. And as Linda said, you know, I pay my taxes like everybody else, and I expect equal levels of treatment I, I will accept that there's, there's, a, there's a legacy of a lack of knowledge, 
but my work with the Department of Health over the last couple of years has been concerned with publishing an entire boatload of leaflets and booklets and information. There is absolutely no excuse anymore. Some more statistics, just to tie this down. Now that we have a legal process, we actually have one means of measuring people. Now, counting transsexual people who've completed their transition and applied for legal recognition isn't the full answer, but it's an indicative one. The process opened its doors in April 2005, and as of March this year, I, I periodically write to the gender recognition panel and say, can I have some new numbers? And I'm, nowadays, I'm, I'm not doing it every five minutes because I like to let them get on with their work. But now that things have settled down, they tell me that around about 25 people a month are applying for legal recognition, which because the initial rush has, has, has ebbed away, you know, pe people who are waiting for this have, have got their legal recognition, this means that this probably equates to about the number of people who are completing treatment, and that also suggests it, it equates to the number of people who are entering the process for treatment as well. And getting on for 2,400 people by now have received legal recognition. So we're not an enormous number of people, but nevertheless, that's a significant number because that's a transformation of every one of those people's lives. And I will emphasize that 97% of those applications are approved as well. Now let's look at the other side of what we know statistically. I know from questioning the places where people are referred for, for help that about 900 new cases, uh, new, new people seek uh, help every year. Now, about 600 of those are through the NHS, and 500 of those every year are new referrals to the, the main centre in, uh, in Hammersmith in London, the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic. 300 are people who don't want to go via the NHS, or, as unfortunately in parts of the East Midlands, find that the NHS is unlawfully refusing to fund uh, the treatment that they need. Um, well, there's a disconnect in these numbers because if 900 people are going into the system and 300 people are coming out, what's happening? Well, it goes back to what I said at the beginning, which is that not everybody who seeks help with their gender uh, identity actually needs gender reassignment in order to solve it. So if people are looking at these numbers and thinking, oh, my God, you know, if we had to commission for that in the health service, oh, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to get less good biscuits for our meetings. It isn't the case. In fact, if you look at those 300 people, which is probably a pretty good measure of the number of people actually completing gender reassignment by one means or another, that means, because there are about 150, 354 PCTs in the country, that the average PCT is seeing no more than this number of cases per year. So if treatment takes two or three years, maybe you know, I might have to take one pair of socks off as well, but... It's not a vast number. And other research which we've commissioned shows that that treatment is 98% successful. Now, there aren't many treatments that people actually have in healthcare which can claim that degree of success. It's transformative for people's lives. The other side of the coin is that within this research, we found that people who, before they had received the treatment and support they needed... 34% of them had considered or attempted suicide one or more times. So on the one, on the one side, 
you've got people who, without treatment, one-third are suicidal, or on the other, almost 100% of them go away and you don't see them again for this condition because we've actually managed to fix it. It's so easy to do. So it's so remarkable that, unfortunately, a few weeks ago, I discovered uh, a public health manager in Nottingham saying that his PCT would only fund um, the counselling to, to help people to cope with where they were. In other words, to stay in crisis for the rest of their lives at massive cost to the health service. All because they had it in their head that funding hormone treatment and possibly funding a bit of surgery at the end of it was something that was you know, completely beyond the pale in terms of their budgets. You know, budgets be damned. It's nothing to do with that, because as we've seen, the numbers simply don't support that. And the man actually said, and this is what you know, I'd desperately like to find out if this is true, is that from September, the, the whole of the East Midlands was going to adopt the same commissioning policy. Well, over my dead body, because a case that took place in 1999 made that unlawful. And I've already got the Equality and Human Rights Commission investigating this and prepared to take action if necessary. So we can get Trevor to do something, some good things sometimes. That brings us on to legal protection. How am I doing for time? Another couple of minutes. I knew I'd run out. There's an awful lot of legislation protecting trans people. Why? Because there's been an awful lot of discrimination. That's what's led to this. We've got protection against um, discrimination in employment and in vocational education. We've got protection through case law against discrimination in the provision of health service uh, support for trans people. We've got protection for, priv uh, for privacy and for the right to be able to marry. And from this April, we've also rather belatedly got the same protection that lesbian and gay people have against um, the, for, for the provision of goods, services and housing. Um, and also, since last April, um, transsexual people themselves, people who are intending to undergo, undergoing or have undergone gender, uh, gender reassignment, are also within the ambit of the uh, gender equality duty. So whenever any of you are doing an equality impact assessment for the gender equality duty, then, again, if you haven't included transsexual people in that work, then, uh, again, I'll be after you, I'm afraid. And don't do... I, I do equality impact assessment training uh, for a living. So don't do what somebody um, said to me uh, last week at a course I was giving. They'd actually filled out a form when we were going through it as a workshop, uh, checking, you know, discussing how they'd done this. And they'd come to the conclusion that there were no problems in their recruitment policy for les lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans people on the basis that they hadn't been the subject of litigation. <laughs> yeah, forget the fact that the, uh, with, with the ink is barely dry on the paper of the legislation. You know, we're coming. You know, don't wait for it. We'll get you otherwise. But we'd rather not have to do that because it's so easy. And again, picking up something that, that Linda had said, you know, that's why the consultation part and the inclusion part of equality impact assessment is so vitally important because none of us know what we don't know we don't know. 
So if you go into this process and simply say, oh, you know, we don't know anything about lesbian, gay, bisexual or trans people. Oh, so there's no problem really, is there? You're not doing the process. It's failing. So very quickly then, some areas to consider. Well, in employment, you need to think about how your, whether your organisation looks open to trans people who might be consider, considering employment. And I actually saw an advertisement go around yesterday for non-executive posts uh, in the regional development agencies, which actually said, you know, we are open to transgender people. That's wonderful. Uh, I did see on the tube uh, a couple of years ago a, a whole post on the wall that said, you know, we'd like to recruit transsexual people into the Metropolitan Police. That's the kind of message that tells people that you're open to consideration. But also make sure you get your processes right behind it. You know, don't, don't do that and do what a, um, a health organisation in my own home region did recently, that they, they successfully recruited somebody from social care to train uh, in nursing in their, in their hospital. And on her first day, they took her, they'd sorted out the uniform and everything else, and on the first day, somebody took her around and showed her the male changing room and said, that is where you change. What kinds of moron does that? Of course, you also, you know, if you've spent tens of thousands of pounds training your staff, you don't want to lose them because it becomes impossible for them to stay in their organisation. So, um, yeah, retaining existing staff is a vitally important affair. We're probably somewhere between 1 in 5,000 and 1 in 10,000 of the population. So in any significant size organisation, there's probably going to be not just one, but several of us. Consider privacy and do this because it really matters from the point of view of your good health as well. Because... Um, if somebody has applied for and received a gender recognition certificate under the Gender Recognition Act, then their privacy has very specific protection. It means that if you're working in an official position and somebody tells you, as a matter of honesty, um, that they had undergone gender reassignment, you do not have the right to tell that information to anybody else, not including your manager or a colleague or anybody without their explicit permission to do so. If you need that information for some good purpose, then explain that to the person who's just given you the information and obtain their permission. It doesn't harm to do that. And if they're not prepared to give you that permission, then you'll have to explain back, of course, what the implications of that are. But it also means that when you record information in filing systems, you have to give consideration to how you're going to protect that. Because it's not just you passing it on directly by word of mouth and blabbing in the pub, but it's also what you might leave in a file for somebody else to find and pick up. So, and again, you know, it will come home to roost. The penalty is a £5,000 fine and, of course, a criminal record, and nobody wants one of those. I could go on, but I'm running out of time in terms of direct and indirect harassment. Um, goods, uh, goods, services and housing... Again, we could talk about, remember that person who had the, the petrol through their letterbox? You know, people need to be rehoused sometimes in, in a state of emergency. Um, and, of course, goods and services. Services also applies to the provision of health. So it's not just the gender equality duty that hits the health service. It's also uh, this aspect of the, um, the Sex Discrimination Act. 
I will just very quickly, to round off, just come back to these issues in, 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 in healthcare because I think they are so important. Going back to that equalities review sample I spoke of before, to say 6.3% of the 870 people we polled said they had been outright refused medical treatment. But a further 13.2% said they weren't refused, but certainly their health treatment suffered markedly because the people they dealt with knew they were trans. Now, looking on the bright side, that means that 80% were not saying that. They had a brighter picture. But within that 80%, 60% of those people said their general practitioner had said they would like to help but they didn't know where to get the information. They knew, didn't know how to treat somebody. Well, when I go and see my doctor, you know, I don't want to have to spend my time explaining to him how he should treat me. Because if that's the case, then I'll just get a mirror and do it myself. There's a lot of research. That research that I've been referring to was recently re uh, repeated for the uh, um, European Commission we did it across the whole of, the, um, of Europe. We translated 100 questions into 13 different languages. We brought translators and interviewers from around Europe to Manchester and trained them in how to conduct face-to-face -face interviews. And it's a much bigger survey. But it actually replicates the same kind of result. We also, through the Department of Health, um, commissioned a study which has been undertaken by some commissioners and will be published next month. Uh, into the outcomes that people experience and you know, what they think of the treatment they've had within the health service. And again, that bolsters exactly what we're, what we're saying here. And it's now good that it's actually a few commissioners saying things have got to change. I'm really looking forward to the recommendations that come out of that. But please don't wait for it. You know, I'll give you my phone number if you like. You can call me. Very reasonable rates. And there's all these literature. I mean, this is just from the Department of Health. This is the stuff we've published in the last couple of months. There's the, there's, uh, there's the material within the wonderful pack that uh, Julie uh, uh, prepared. Um, there's some trainer-trainers uh, slides. There's a whole uh, set of um, booklets, even on very specialist topics. Um, I found myself referring to the bereavement booklet a couple of weeks ago because uh, my mother died. And I thought, well, although I know all this, I just want to check you know, what, I, what my rights are. So there's an enormous amount of material. And it's all available off the Department of Health website. Overall, just for a quick message to finish with, is a lot of this really boils down to behaving professionally. It's treating people with respect. It's maintaining their privacy. It's providing them with care. It's seeking out best practice, or if you can't find it, developing it. It's, it's working of facts, not folklore. Go back to those equality impact assessments for that. And overall, it's behaving with maturity. And if you want some tips, then um, the, the picture there is of a, a wonderful YouTube video by an American um, trans woman who um, is now rapidly advancing her career in, in the media. And she's done a wonderful uh, homemade video on bad questions to ask a transsexual. It's uproariously funny. Some people really get the hump over it, but it's actually really well meant. And, you know, if you cringe, well, yeah, we, we are very forgiving. You know, we, we can help you get over it. Okay. Lots of other resources as well. I know I've overstayed my welcome, but thank you very much for your time.
Well, that was me at Leicester City Football Ground on June the 5th. If you enjoyed this podcast, then don't forget that there are more than 30 episodes on a variety of equality and diversity issues, all at podcast.plainsense.co.uk, and there's a hyphen in the middle of Plain Sense. The web pages also have lots of options for subscribing to the channel too. That means your computer will automatically notify you each time there's a new item to listen to. If you use Apple iTunes on your computer, then you'll also find us in the online store, for free of course. Simply search for Just Plain Sense. For now though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production.